So, real quick, ladies, I'm going to take a, a survey real quick. Ladies, favorite movies, real quick, favorite movies. Titanic. Titanic. Dirty Dancing. God's Not Dead. African Queen. Okay, okay, I didn't ask for guys. Any other ones, ladies? Pretty Woman. Okay, guys, what do all those have in common? They're all love stories. They're all about, you know, love and all this. Guys, favorite movies? Star Wars. Filler on the Roof. Die Hard. Anything by John Wayne. Right? Okay, so what's the difference there? Action. Right? There's intrigue. There's, there's tension that, you know, people could die. Right? So there's, you could see right there the differences between men and women. Right? Love and I want something to die. Right? Um, and what's interesting, so I don't know if you noticed this, but movies will, will reflect society. Right at the time. So if you go back, actually, back into like the 1950s, 1940s, what were kind of movies that were there? There kind of there's westerns. There's things that look back. Right. There's some war movies happening. There there are these. There's musicals. Right. And then you come into the 1970s, and movies really start changing. And what's interesting is at that time, if you, if you were there, or if you just know history, in our society, there was a lot of problems going on, right? So we had the Vietnam, we're coming out of the Vietnam War, and it just seemed like there was crime everywhere. There was, um, uh, uh, kind of like now, uh, it seems like just crimes everywhere, right? And there was all these different... Um, like there was riots, right? The Watts riots during that time. Um, we actually went to Watts and we were talking to a lady who was sharing her story and she was a teenager at the time during the Watts riots because they were in Watts, you know? And um, so you see these movies that start coming out. You have things like the Dirty Harry series, right? Um, what was the one? Um, it's with, uh, his name starts with a B. Bronson, what was that? Death Wish. Death Wish. Um, And you have these kind of vigilante or real tough guy killing movies, right? Um, And we're actually seeing that now, today, where we start seeing riots today and we're seeing crime that seems to be getting out of control. And you have things that are like Yellowstone, right? They take care of business, right? Or you have, you might not have heard these movies, I don't know. or you have the John Wick series where his dog gets killed and now he goes, you know, he's a hitman and he goes back into it all. And it reflects our society. And what's interesting about these things is if you look, remember last week we talked about the hero's journey, about how it starts with this young, you know, this person that really doesn't know much but then um, becomes a hero. In a lot of media, there's a vengeance story too. And so things like Death Wish, it's about vengeance right? Uh, John Wick, it's about vengeance. In fact, you see this in a lot of medium. Um, in the Batman, right? The, a new Batman movie that comes out, someone asks him, who are you? And usually in Batman movies, he says, well, I'm Batman, right? In this one, he says, I'm vengeance, 
because there's this real there's this quote with Batman. He says, "I am the knight, I am vengeance." Because why? Because his his parents were killed, and he's taking vengeance, right? And so vengeance becomes a huge theme because when we feel our weakest, we want someone to deal with the issue, right? And so when society starts going bad, you start seeing a lot of cop movies, or you start seeing a lot of really um, this vengeance type of persona. And when society feels like it's going good, you start seeing a lot more love stories and a lot more um, stabilization of culture because that the, our movies and our TV shows reflect how we feel. And so we, go, we don't go see movies that, well, I don't want to see a movie about Barbie. I want to go see a movie that stuff blows up. You know, and it's this, our society will do this. This is why superhero movies were so popular for so long because, oh man, our society feels like it's doing okay, and we, but it's not there, and we want heroes that carry that. And so Captain America is one of those heroes that that's what America should be type of thing. And so, but vengeance is this huge medium that's happening right now in our midst because our society feels like it's out of control. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is vengeance. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Judges chapter 8, and we're going to go all the way to, chap- to the end of chapter 9. Now, what we're going to do today is usually we read that entire thing, but because it's such a large chunk, we're going to read the first part, and then we're going to read pieces of the second part so you really have to read through this this week okay to get the full story but before we jump into that let's get back and refresh our minds where we are we do this every week so that one it solidifies in our minds and two it brings us up because like i i told um a pastor i was talking to a pastor last week and he's preparing for his ordination which thank god i'm already done with but he's preparing for that, and it's like 200 questions that you have to memorize, and you have to give an answer to, and he's dealing with that, and I told him I had to deal with that, and I forgot everything, because, and it's the same thing in here, on Monday morning, I forget even what I preach, like, I can tell you the theme, that's about it, so we always do these, um, these things where we remember, we go back, so that we can continue to remember where we're at, because it's a long series, okay? So the first thing that we've talked about is, the first theme is the overarching theme of Scripture, and we see it in Judges, is that even when humanity is unfaithful, God is always faithful, okay? That's a huge theme, because if we don't get that, then what we're going to say is, well, because I'm unfaithful, God must be unfaithful. That's where mistrust comes in. Because I don't always go and do what I say I'm going to do, then God must reflect me. And that's a very pagan idea of who God is. In fact, we actually see this. If you go into and you look at all of the Greek gods, the Roman gods, that's who they are. They're reflections of humanity. And so Zeus, I love this one thing I saw this week. They said, here's all of Greek mythology all put into one book. And then it says, now if you take out Zeus and, and him being a, an idiot... You have that much. And the idea is there because Zeus is just a a human on steroids. He reflects humanity. But the God of Scripture does not. 
is greater. And so when we're unfaithful, he's still faithful. Does that make sense? We're good? Okay, the second thing that we've talked about is obedience. That because God is faithful, he calls us into a relationship with him. And when we enter into that relationship, a part of that relationship is obedience. That we are to be obedient to God. Now, for the Christian, our relationship is based on grace. So you can't earn it, and you can't just throw it away when you want to. It's based on who God is, not on who we are. And so, but a part of that, there's still obedience. Obedience shows love. And so we talked about that before, about in John, where Jesus brings up this phrase again and again, if you love me, you'll obey. Because obedience shows love. And so it's the same thing with children, right? When your children are obedient, you feel loved because they, it's a respect issue. It's, okay, I'll do it. When they are disobedient, you don't feel loved by them. It's, you must hate me. You must be angry with me. There's a problem here because obedience is a, a, a sign of love. All right, so that's our second theme. And our third theme that we've talked about is that the lack of obedience affects everything. It affects us, it affects the people around us, our close, it affects even our society. I shared with you guys a story last week of a, a situation where sin not just affected two people, it affected an entire community because it shut down a, a school here. And so our sin, our disobedience, will actually hurt people outside of us in places that we might even not realize. And that's what we keep seeing in Scripture, that one person's disobedience has a a domino effect. In fact, what we'll see today in Gideon's story is he was doing really well, and then he sins, and that sin that he carries on for the rest of his life actually has a domino effect to the entire nation. And so we'll actually see that in real time with Gideon. But last week we started Gideon, uh, we started the second week of Gideon's story. And what we saw with him is he finally gets to a place where he trusts God. He finally gets that place. Because before that, he keeps testing and keeps testing it, but finally he gets to a place where he trusts God. Now, here's the big thing that we need to know about Scripture. Scripture takes the good and it takes the bad. And it will, it will say, this is good. It will say, this is bad. But it doesn't gloss over it. It doesn't... Say, okay, this is all the good. Let's not talk about the bad stuff. Scripture says, let's look at all of it. Why? Because it helps us understand, I can put myself in Gideon's boots. There are times when I mistrust God. There are times when I test God. And yet, God is still faithful. And so, just because the human is unfaithful, and we see that in Scripture, we see that in our own lives, God is still faithful. And so what we're going to see today is Gideon did really good and still sinned, still messed up. And because of that, there's consequences. All right? So we're in Judges 8. We're going to read 22, starting 22. And we're only going to read down to verse 28 right now. Okay? So here we go. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, 
Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answer, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in in it the earrings of a spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah and all Israel whored after it there and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. And so what we just read is at the end. So last week, Gideon finally trusts God. He finally goes after the Midianites. He gets everyone to come with him. Then if you did your homework, you would have read how he had all these victories. From that point where he finally goes after him in that camp at night, he has victories over. And there's some gruesome stuff that happens in there. And so now we're at the point where they have the victory, they have the spoils of war, and now they come to Gideon and they say, Gideon, we want you to be our king. That's the terminology, rule over us. It's, we want you to be a king. And not just you, we want a dynastic king. We want you, your son, and his son to rule over us. Now this is the first time in Israel's history where they actually say, we want a king. A lot of people think it's with Saul. It's not. It's with Gideon. Gideon's the first person that Israel says, we want a king. So, people think, well, that's not right. Israel shouldn't ask for that. Actually, they could. So remember, they have a covenant with God. And a covenant is just an agreement. It's similar. It's not exactly, but similar like if you have a rental agreement or have a business agreement. It's the same idea. You have certain stipulations and certain things you can do within that um, contract. The other party also has certain stipulations and certain things they can do in that contract. If you both keep the terms of that contract, you have, you have use of it. So you know when you go on your phone and, or online and it says, do you agree to terms? How many of you have read all the terms? Probably not. Some, some people do. The vast majority of us do not. And then we go, how do they know when I, when I Googled this and now I see all these ads? You know why? Because you agree to the contract. Okay, so that's why they can do stuff like that. All right? So in Israel's contract with God, they can actually get a king. And so this comes from, um, from Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy you have this, this place in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Um, we'll get... Where are we at? There we go. I'm ahead of what she has, that's why. So in Deuteronomy 17, they actually have a stipulation within the contract where they can request a king. And so this is what it says in Deuteronomy 17. It says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like, the, like all the other nations around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Okay, so he's saying you may do this, but, and here's the stipulations, it has to be someone that I choose, that God chooses. 
One from among your brothers you shall set king as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to require many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not require uh, acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom... He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the nations of this law, or all the words of this law, and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children is Israel. So, you have this this thing where Gideon can become a king. So if we we can go to the next one there, all right. So so the people wanted Gideon to be a king, right? And so they have that that option. And so they request it. Now the question is, does Gideon want the role? And it seems like he doesn't, right? So if we go back into the thing, it says, Gideon said to him, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Okay, so he seems to reject it. I'm not going to do that. Except, you ever hear someone that says one thing but does another? I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. We actually see that with Gideon. He says, I will not be your king. But then his actions actually reflect something different so what does he start doing the first thing he does is let me make a request of you every one of you give me the earrings of his spoil okay this is one thing that he starts to do you know what that's called it's called a tribute he's asking for a tribute from the people now here's the thing in near eastern kingships what they're going to do is they're going to request tribute from people. You know why you request tribute? There's two reasons. One, because you're the king and they're not and they owe you money. Okay? That's, you're, that way you don't go into them and, and take over their land. In fact, we saw this with Ehud, the judge way back when. Ehud brought a tribute to the king... Right? Do you guys remember that story? He brings this tribute, and because he brings this tribute, the king thinks, oh, this guy is on my side. And so Gideon is actually requesting a tribute. Give me your earrings. And then, what does he do with those earrings? He makes an ephod. Now, this is what an ephod looks like. Uh, you guys can kind of get this idea. You got it up there? The next slide? No? Okay. So that's kind of an ephod. Basically, it's um, you can think of it like this. Um, what do you do? You wear those things when you cook? What are those things called? Aprons. It kind of is like an apron. Okay, it's a little bit more than that, but it's an apron. It has jewels. It's very nice. It has certain things. Okay, um, this is what an ephod looks like. The purpose of an ephod is for a priest to wear it, and then they go before God. Now, God set this all up in Exodus and in Leviticus, that the, the priests were to wear this ephod, okay? And he gave them specific directions on how to make it. So an ephod by itself doesn't mean anything. 
But Gideon makes a gold ephod. It's different than the ephod for the priests. And then he takes that ephod and he places it in his hometown. This is what actually what a Near Eastern king does. See, one of the roles of a, a Near Eastern king is the role between, as a mediator between the gods and the people. So he plays a special priestly role, though he's not a priest in the sense of the other priests. But a Near Eastern king in Mesopotamia and in Egypt, they play a a semi-divine role in which they have special communication with the gods. And then they would wear ceremonial outfits similar to the ephod. And so by Gideon making this ephod, he's putting himself into that position of, look, I am a mediator between God and you. And then on top of that, the place he puts it, he puts it into his hometown. That's really important because at this point in in Israelite history, God's tabernacle where God's presence rested with Israel is down in Shiloh. It's way south. From where Gideon is. So what Gideon is actually doing. Is he's actually saying. No God's presence is going to be here with me. In my town. And so it's actually challenging. The Deuter- Deuteronomic covenant. And where God places his presence. And so this is, this is big stuff that he's doing. And it doesn't seem like it. Because oh he's just asking for this. He's just doing this. But it's a huge thing because eventually what it says, it says that Israel hoard after it. And that terminology is really important because they are so they want it so bad that they will give of themselves. That's the idea of hoarding, that they're going to give of themselves whatever is necessary. If it, and this is a sexually charged word because it's trying to help us understand just the 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 hugeness of what this is. They're going to give anything for this ephod. And so they now what Gideon has done, he's actually set up an idol. Maybe inadvertently, but he sell, still sets this idol up, and now it's going to cause Israel to sin. And so here he is, he's doing all these things. That's not the only thing he does. If we keep reading, um, we find out We keep going down, and we get down into verse 33 here. In verse 33, it says this, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Oh, I missed the whole section. That's what I did. That's why we're all messed up. Going back to verse 29, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went to live in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, did in a, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abyssalites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the balls and made Baal Bareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done in Israel. Sorry, I must have 
highlighted the wrong things in my Bible. And so, so we see that going back to this idea of what Gideon is doing, even though he's saying, I don't want to be king, he's doing these things that are actually making himself king. Right? So, in this passage, we have this. So he has 70 sons. That's a, I don't know if you know, but that's a lot of kids. Okay? How, you know, I think the, the most one person ever had was like 30 or 40 kids. Like, it's back in the early 1900s, they have it all documented. Basically, she was pregnant every single day of her life. Like, just had all these kids. Okay, so either one, he had this one wife, right, that had all these kids, or he had multiple wives that have all these kids. What does it tell us? He has multiple wives, okay? So he has multiple wives. This is another sign of a king thing, because only kings did this, are very, very wealthy and influential people. And so he's told, that we're told that he has all these wives he has all these sons that is kingly thing but not only that all those wives weren't enough for him he also has a side chick he has a girl a concubine down in shechem and that girl isn't just another israelite it's a canaanite woman and so he has not just his israelite wives he has a canaanite concubine on the side down down in the south And so all of this points to someone that though they're saying, I don't want to be king, I'm going to be a king. And you might think, oh, well, that's all circumstantial. There's got to be more. There is. You keep reading, and we find out that he has a son with the concubine. And that son's name is Abimelech. So you know what Abimelech's name means? Father of the king. So here's a guy that says, I don't want to be king, but I'm going to have this kid, and everyone's going to say, oh, you're the father of the king. So here's Gideon saying, I don't want to be king, but you know what? I'll be, I'll be the king. And then on top of all that, want to keep going? top of all that, later on, Abimelech will actually say that he'll, he'll imply that his brothers are ruling over Israel. And so now it's not just Gideon, but it's it's becoming a dynasty that his sons are now ruling. And so you have all this, even though Gideon is saying, no, I don't want to be God. I mean, I don't want to be king. He acts like a king. He takes tribute like a king he plays the role of a near eastern king and religious things he's doing all these things and kind of like almost like but i'm not you know i'm humble i'm not going to be a king as he does the kingly stuff and what's interesting is so we go from the victory to this moment we can actually see where all this kind of falls apart if we go back to that first verse we read Verse 22, it says this. The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Full stop. Who saved Israel? God did. 
Now we know that because God was saying, I will give, I will give, I will give Midian into your hands. But then when it's brought up, you have saved us from the hand of Midian. What does Gideon say? Nothing. He doesn't correct them. It's almost like Gideon's like, you're right. I did that. And in that one moment, we see just that one disobedient act, one act of not giving God the glory, sends Gideon on this path of, I'm not going to be king, but I'm going to be a king. And so it's just that it's that one simple thing. And then from there, it snowballs. Because he gets the many wives, Gideon specifically, but the nation's downfall. And so you go from that to Abimelech. And so now we jump over and we start reading through. And I want to start back on 33 and we're going to read through chapter 9 verse 6. And this is what it says. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the balls and made Baal Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Whose fault is that? Gideon's because when they said you Gideon saved us he should have said God did that but because he didn't step up because the leader didn't step up and point back to God it says and the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam that is Gideon in return for all the good that he had done to Israel so because even though it, Gideon had all, done all this stuff, even his legacy was tarnished because he didn't give the glory to God. Now, verse 9, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1, Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all the seventy sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, seventy men on one stone. But, jo- but Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. And so now you get Abimelech. Abimelech shows up, and this is the type of leader you get. When the, when the people of God who say we follow God don't actually do it, and you have combine that with a society that doesn't want anything to do with God. Abimelech is the type of leader you get when something like that happens. You know why Hitler came to power? Because the church didn't stand up. You can actually go back and read through people like Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer would say... Things like, it was our fault. We should have said, we should have said no. But the church was silent, or in some cases actually actually helped. 
So when you have the people, the people of God who say they follow God, not following God, and then you have a society that wants nothing to do with God, when you have those two forces, you get people and rulers like Abimelech. And Abimelech is a bad guy. First thing he does, takes all but one of his brothers, and if he could have got his hand on the other brother, would have brought him to the stone and killed him. First thing he does. That's day one. That's his first executive order. Kill the whole family. At any point, when we've read through this, has God said anything? No, God has not spoken. The only mentions of God is how Israel has rejected Him. And so when Israel has rejected God and you move God out of the way, what's left? It's just sin. And when sin compounds on sin, you just get worse and worse, more destruction, more evil, and that's just what's happening. We see that in our society right now. And you can go back, and most people say, well, it was when abortion was legalized, or it was when prayer was legal, uh, taken out of schools. Keep going back. There's a, a point, and you can start seeing the cracks in our society. Um, George Washington. There was a uh, biography written about George Washington. At the beginning of that biography, before the 1900s, it gave eyewitness testimony about his Christian faith and how it's one of the key factors in what made him who he was. I think it was in the 1920s, they republished that book. Guess what was left out? All of that. All of the eyewitnesses about his Christian faith was taken out of that biography and all that was left was a biography. So you did not understand his life because it was not connected to his Christian faith. It is things like that that we start seeing the little, the little cracks, kind of like what we see with Gideon. The one thing that he omits leads to a, 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 a rolling downhill, a snowball as it rolls. It's the same thing in our society. One little thing a hundred years ago, and I'm not saying that is the thing, but you can start seeing these little things that happen. It's that generational sin that continues to go. And the more we move away from God as a society, the more we're going to see these crimes, these horrific things happen in our society. Why? Because we don't want God. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He, when he talked about hell, he viewed hell as a place where it was a constantly growing city. And not in the sense of like a metropolis like we think about, like Phoenix. But you know how you go into Phoenix, and if you've lived in Arizona for, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you drive into Phoenix, and Phoenix was really far in there. And now you get the Buckeye, and it's like, there's Phoenix. Right? So think of that. This is how C.S. Lewis looked at it. Sin is selfishness, right, at its core. It's my way, not your way. Uh, it's my way, not God's way. Right? And if we look at the original sin, it was Eve, the serpent says to Eve, oh, surely God didn't say that. Right? That's, Eve, you have a better way than God, what God said. That's basically what's happening. So do your thing, not God's thing. So sin is my way, not God's way. My way, not your way. And so... C.S. Lewis looked at hell as people who are given over to their sin are so selfish they never want to be around people. So they constantly move away from people. And what do we see in our society when sin is prevalent? 
we see actually a breakdown of the family. We see a breakdown of society. Why do we have such problems on social media? Why is there so much vitriol? Why is there so much horrible things that can be said online but won't be said in person? It's because there's a disconnect. Because I've removed myself from society. Because why? And, I, and my sin now has a place to flourish. One of the most important things about coming and being a part of a congregation is I'm challenged to follow God. Because on my own, it's a lot harder. Because I can justify things. I can say, ah, that's not that important. Did God really say that? But when I come and I'm a part of a congregation and I hear the word and it's like, oh no, this is what the word says. I need to obey. And so it's a huge thing. And so what do we see in Abimelech's story? The selfishness of Abimelech. Because now I'm going to be made king. I want to be king. Not my father, me. And so what does he do? He takes out his entire family. And this is where we start seeing the downfall of Abimelech. So you drop down to verse... um, It's actually verse 7 all the way to verse 21... Jotham, the other son that escaped, he's, he gives this parable, and this parable is all, it all comes together starting in verse 19. So we're going to read in verse 19. Are we doing good? No? This is what Jer- so Jer- uh, Jotham just gives this whole kind of parable about these trees and how um, it's really a good parable, but he comes to this conclusion. If you, he's talking to the leaders of Shechem at this point, if you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam, Gideon, and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. So he's saying, if this is all on the up and up, then rejoice, have a good old time. He says, but, but if not, let fire come out of Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. So he's saying, look, and this is kind of a, 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 I I call it a quasi-prophecy. And so he's basically saying, look, if this is all on the up and up, then you guys are going to have a good time, everything's going to work out. But if not, you guys are going to clash, and you're going to destroy each other. Verse 23 is the first time we get God in this whole thing. And this is what it says. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. What's really interesting here is a couple things. First, it's the first time we hear God involved. It says God sent the evil spirit. God is personally involved there. What's interesting, the second thing that's interesting, it's God is giving them over to their will, to their desire. So he's, he's sending this, this idea of, I'm going to just take off my hand. So now no restraint is happening. So God says, you know what? I was trying to bring this all together, but you know what? I'm backing off. And just lets him go. And I think that fits more what's happening. That he just have at it. And they do. They go after each other. They start dealing treacherously. They start 
scheming and they start infighting. And you know what happens? Abimelech kills them. He goes after the leaders and he starts killing them. And then what ends up happening is that, so now there's all this infighting. And then Abimelech dies. And the way he dies is a lady has this millstone. It's a piece of the millstone. So the grinding rock that they would have to grind out their their wheat. And she takes this piece of it, throws it out the window to hit Abimelech. And it strikes him in such a way that he's dying. And then he recognizes that woman just did this. Now, if you go back, remember Deborah's story? Deborah and Barak? Okay, Jael is the one that killed Sisera. Okay, remember that with the tempeh? Okay, why was that important that Jael did it? And Barak didn't get, didn't, wasn't the one that killed him. Is because she wasn't supposed to do it, right? Because in an honorable, in war, right, at this time, honorable death comes from in war by a, another warrior. So to have someone who's not supposed to be there, Jai, brings dishonor on Barak, or doesn't give him the glory at least, and brings dishonor on Sisera, at the same time. That's how it's viewed. And so for Abimelech to be struck by this millstone that's been from this woman, his response is to his buddy, kill me so that it can't be said that I was killed. I'm being dishonored. This is, and so it fits. And then the very next thing that's said after Abimelech group next week, it says this, others. And God also made all the evil. God saying, I did this. I brought the judgment on these people. And that's a huge thing. Because one of the lessons, hardest lessons to learn is one of the hardest lessons. You ever get to that point where you're like, man, I would just like to pop you upside the head to someone. Right? You know, you go into the... It's not so bad here at the DMV, MVD. But you go to places like California, and you're just like, what I would do to get through this. And then you watch movies, and you just want, and you know, there's people online you want to take your anger out on. There's people, the, the politicians, the opportunity, I'd do it. You know, and I've heard right now, we'll literally call for the death of, we want to take it out on people. And you'll hear stories of people that just be walking down the road and someone will come over and then just punch them. And then you, if you ever listen to the reasoning behind it, they'll say, because they're black, because they're white, because they're Asian, because they're a male, because they're a female, because they're whatever. And our society, our response is, I want to take them out. I want to re- what Scripture calls us to. That's not what God calls us to. In fact, this is what God says. In Romans twelve 17, we're told, Repay no, no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Because if someone hurts you down with the doctor and the doctor would take the little hammer and hit your knee and you kick him, right? That is the natural reaction. 
Why? Because we're in a sinful state. So it's a sinful natural reaction. It's not true nature, because nature, we were created to be perfect, but it's our natural state right now because we're in sin. And yet, Scripture tells us not to do that. Because it doesn't matter the situation. Because I can justify that. They hurt me. So Lord, how do I do that? Why should I do that? If someone hurts me, that I mean, what's that... What's that going to do? That just hurts me. They're not going to learn. Romans 2.8. 2.28. Sorry. 2.28. We're, listen to what God says. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So in response to that, well, God, why should I perspective who God is in judgment? Because when I get hurt, my response is, how often are emotions correct? You like tripped into it. That's what falling right there with you. When you're hurting, I'm going to be right there with you. Love, really, is a time when I'm going to fall out of this. That's not real love. And so my emotions, they can trick me all the time. You ever get angry and then you eat something and you're fine? Okay, so that means that a candy bar, yeah. And Snickers built their whole ad campaign on this very idea. Like, because our emotional state is such in flux that we are constantly going back and forth and so when I respond in my emotional state, I'm not responding probably in a good way. I don't know if you've ever done this where you, someone says something and on social media and then you type it out and you go, probably shouldn't say that. And then you delete it. That's, a good, that's the best thing you could have done. Because when we respond in our emotions, when we respond with just vengeance, it always leads to more hurt, more sin. And so what God is saying, He's saying, look, all that evil that's happening, if you, are, if you love me, means you're obedient. If you are called, and there's two ways that that could happen. It could be worked out for our good, because we love God, we're called to don't love Him, and what ends up happening? People get slaughtered. This leads to more sin. It's funny because in Matthew chapter 5, uh, chapter, this is all paraphrased. We tend to look at ourselves and we, we go, oh, what I do isn't that bad. But then we look at someone and go, and they're really bad. And Jesus uses the idea of planks and sawdust. Because a plank, I don't know if you've ever seen a piece of wood, a plank is big, it's thick, and holds a lot of weight. But sawdust isn't that bad. I mean, it gets in your eyes, it's bad. But it's, it's compared, right? It's solid. You take sawdust, it's not as heavy. It's not as um, material. It's not, you know, a lot of things. But we make, as the saying goes, we make mountains out of molehills. 
That's what we do. And so what Jesus is trying to say in Matthew 7 is, don't just go over and start judging people. Don't start going in because first, look at those planks. Look at that problem and make sure you've dealt with that. And then you can deal with, once those are dealt with, then the slightest thing can be dealt with with your other brother and sister. And so we have to get to this point where we, okay, God, you're judge. I'm not. You say you're going to work this out, so I'm going to be obedient to you, and I'm going to do what you called me to do. So God, it's all yours. That's hard to do, and yet that's what God calls us to do. That means I have to forgive people. I have to ask for forgiveness. Because one of the things it says in Romans uh, um, 12 back there, it says, be honorable. It says, do what is honorable. Because sometimes I don't want to live peacefully. And there is a point where you have to stand up for justice. Because there's a difference between vengeance and justice. Vengeance is meant to make you feel better. Jesus, one last thought. Does he come in and bring, okay, I'm going to deal with sin, so I'm going to do more sin. He lays his life, the God of the universe who judges rightly, who's the only person that has a clear picture of the whole thing. In Judges, it says the people hoard after the idols, right? To give us that picture of... But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, put this into judge language, while we were still whoring, in the position of saying, God, my way, not your way, my kingdom, not your kingdom, I'm going to... What does that mean for God's people? What are we to do? We're called Christians. That means we're supposed to be giving evil to evil. We're supposed to be doing good. And one of the, thing, one of the things that we have to do with that way... And it's probably, but they want to do it. It's like, this is going to, yeah, this is going to end really badly, but hey, the oven with touching the fire. Don't do that. You're going to burn your hand. Touch. Now do you go, well, stinks to be you. See ya. No, what you do is you bandage, right? Why? Because you love them. We as believers need to do the same thing. Don't do that. And when you get burned, I'll be right here. And so it's this, it's this constant thing of, okay, Jesus, what did you do? I want to do that. You didn't do that? I'm not going to think we're at the challenge. Are we? What do we got left? One, go back one. I don't know what it is, but go back one. Hurt us, right? That they be shown grace. So if, I, I love saying this to people my favorite saying when someone brings a, a problem to me they're like oh this person did this I don't always say but I like to say it because it makes me feel better who's the mature Christian in this situation someone who's the mature Christian in your situation most people will say well that's me and I loved it so Pastor Jeff he, he would tell me he, he always got in trouble right Carol always got in trouble with people and he told me, is he go, you're right. And then he would say, and you should hear all the other things I've done bad. <laughs> because what that did was, look, I'm not perfect. I do things bad. And that's, 
people are going to bring that up. You did this, you did this. Yes, you're right. So that I can be more like him. So now here's the thing. Mature Christian, that means you're going to be the first one that says, I was wrong. Is that, that's pretty easy, right? No. This is, and I, I get in trouble with this a lot. I'm usually right in most circumstances. Doesn't matter who's it with, I'm usually right. And someone goes, and I have a discussion or an argument, I can make people understand why I'm right and they're wrong. I'll give you a real quick example. We were at the um, planning and zoning meeting. I'm sitting next to a lady, um, known her for years, and we're talking, and she goes, I don't think that they should strike down this this ordinance. And we're talking about the ordinance about the setback right here. And so I walked her through it, why it needs to be struck down. After it was struck down, she, on one of my, on one of the posts that I put, she said, thank you for explaining it to me. You know why? Because I'm right. (laughs) And I'm mostly right. Ask my wife. She knows. Tell the person, okay. Whatever you say. And I, I got to this point in leadership, this idea of leading people. Let's try it. Your, this is the way I think it should be done. But we'll try it. So with people, okay, you're right. Because my identity is with Jesus. I'm talking to someone, and, I have a, and I'm supposed to be the mature Christian. If I'm constantly trying to get my way and force my way, the one that says, I'm going to ask for forgiveness first. First one to love, and I'm going to be the last one to get my way. And Jesus actually tells his disciples, the first will be last, and the last will be first. So in the long run, I get more out of this. In the short run, they get to see Jesus. Does that make sense? So my challenge for you, can we get to the challenge now? The challenge now is this. Read this section. Right? You've got to read the section. Because Abimelech, you might be going, Abimelech doesn't sound like such a bad guy. Read his story. It gets worse. Okay? Read his story so you can understand. Secondly, read Matthew 7, 1 through 5 and go to God and say, Okay, God, I want to deal with that hungry. I get angry. You know, Lord, you're the good judge. You deal with this. So, Lord... I give it up to you. That's Romans 17, or Romans 12, 17 through 19. Make that your prayer, all right? We good? That's a pretty hard one. Okay. That's why it took so long this week. And the grace that you've shown us, thank you that even in the, the problems that we have, you're still good. Lord, thank you that we get to come before you even in our most... Father, I pray for everyone in here, including myself, that if we're going through those things where forgiveness is not being given, that we would be the first one to forgive. If we're tearing down people, that we would instead turn around and encourage them, lift them up. That we see the good, that they do good, even in the, the humanistic idea. Though they might be a way that would lead to repentance, that we would be mindful of the Holy Spirit, that we wouldn't speak unless we we're prompted to speak, and that we'd be silent when we we're prompted to be silent. Lord, help us. This is so difficult.
Give us your strength. Give us your peace to accomplish it, that we may be obedient and in right relationship with you. So I ask these in Jesus' name. Amen.